Well, we're in First uh, Peter chapter two, and uh, verses six through eight on your sheets there kind of keep us in a kind of somewhat manner and form of where we're at. Let's walk through a little bit about where we've been in the preceding context, just briefly. In chapter one of verse eighteen. Um, as Peter is speaking to believers about 30 years after the death of Christ, Peter says in verse 18 that uh, you were ransomed. You were ransomed from the feudal ways, the feudal ways of life. And it was with His precious blood. Remember that, that great verse there. We were all victims of sin and um, death. And uh, of course, that was all feudal. There was... Nothing in that kind of life. Everything was really nothing. And then we see that Christ paid that ransom. Christ paid the price. And First Peter 2.24, we haven't gotten there yet, but it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So now as Christians, nothing we do is futile. It all has eternal significance, doesn't it? And then in 1 Peter 1, in 20 and 21, we see that He was destined before foundation of the world to be made manifest in uh, when He did. And because of Him, we have confidence in God because He raised Him from the dead. And all the glory is found in Him. And your faith and hope are in God. So what makes this Jesus Christ so special is that His blood ransoms all the believers from their feudal way of life, very empty, and as we see that He was manifested in the flesh, He lived from all eternity with God the Father, Holy Spirit. What a great fellowship that the Trinity had. And after His crucifixion, God the Father raised Him from the dead, gave Him glory in heaven, and God did this. First of all, for His sake, but then also for us. He did all this for us. Incredible as we uh, think about Resurrection Day coming up and we think of the death of Christ and, and uh, of course, the resurrection. And, um, of course, this is the very foundation, the very basis of Christianity. But uh, it's for us. Now, if we obey it, as Peter moved on, we, we put our hope and faith in Him. That's really where obedience is at. As we put our hope and faith in Him, then as a result of that, we desire to have our souls purified, to have them cleansed. Sins are forgiven. And the old desires that we used to have are no longer there, at least as much. Those have really actually been replaced with new desires. We have new desires. And we know in verse 22, He talked about us loving one another. Uh, then he spoke about because we've been born again um, and there is a purification of the soul. It's the new birth, something that he caused. He imparts a very absolute new nature into the believer. A total change, just like that. Holy Spirit comes in. The very character of God begins to spread through our personalities. 
The Spirit of God is living in us, spreading through, using our personality to conform us to the image of Christ even as we sit here right now. If we pay attention to His Word and let His Spirit speak, we're being changed into the image of Christ even more. More than you were even a week ago, two weeks ago as you pursue Him. Hopefully, you know we're being... Uh, transformed constantly. We've already been transformed, but it's an ongoing thing. So conversion to Christ is not simply a decision to believe some facts about God, is it? What it is, it's a new person that's born because of the imperishable Word of God. That seed, right? So all this sounds familiar. That's in verse 23 of Peter. Um, So the Gospel begets Children of God, when it meets with this life transforming faith. Then we went into chapter 2, and now we're getting up to kind of where we're at. Peter urges us to confirm the newness that we have, that we are new creatures, and that we lay aside all the desires, and then he tells them what? Here's what you lay aside all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And so some of those things that we have, we don't desire. We shouldn't desire that. We have a desire for Christ. And of course, he compared that with what? Newborn babes. Infants that go after the milk. They desire that um, milk. And of course, we desire that pure spiritual milk. Conversion to Christ is, is caused by tasting His kindness. Uh, he used that word in verse two, verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, once you have tasted that, you don't want anything else. You want that pure milk of the spiritual Word. You know, there's no other beverage in the world that can satisfy like that, huh? We know it. We know that that's what satisfies us. It's the Word of God. So when things aren't kind of clicking right in our own minds and our own hearts, uh, just... Turn to the Word of God. Keep thinking. This is this is where I have to look this at. I have to go after this. So that's that's a that's a sign of a, a Christian because he he desires that uh, milk, that pure milk of the Word. If there could be a healthy baby who desired no milk, then there'd be a Christian who would desire not Christ. That's impossible, right? Now, you know that that can't happen. A baby would die if it didn't long after that pure milk, right? Got to have the milk. A baby may get sick, go a couple of days maybe without eating or drinking that milk, but it's going to regain this or it's going to die. It's going to have to bring that in. And so it's the same way with believers. Uh, Sometimes we might experience lean seasons and dry nights of the soul, I guess you could say, and don't even feel like turning into the Word. But true believers will come out of that. They will. It's just for a little short time. The appetite will always return. That's a mark of a Christian. Or else they'll die and just wither. <laughs> then in verses 4 through 8, you get that metaphor of the pure milk of the Word and such there. Being born again. Peter's using different kind of pictures here. Christ is not just the milk we desire. He is the precious and chosen cornerstone. Now he uses another analogy, another picture here, that we would 
come to. And He would build our lives individually and corporately as the church. So He's building us individually. At the same time He's doing it individually, the church is going up and being built. So that's where we're at as we move into verse 6. And I've got this first point. Believers will not be disappointed. Let's read this text. Now, this is kind of some uh, some of the same things that he's been talking about in 4 and 5, talking about the precious living stone, spiritual house, offering up spiritual sacrifices, you know, a priesthood and such. And he'll get back to that in verse 9 again. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Wow. So you have two kinds of people here, believers and unbelievers. And, you, and of course, at the, at the middle of it all is this cornerstone. It's Christ. Christ Himself. It's always that. It always starts with that, doesn't it? Behold. It starts out, actually, for this is contained in Scripture. That's interesting. Thus saith the Lord. Right? Here's the Word of God. This one kind of says something a little bit different. This is contained in Scripture. This is contained in Scripture. It's significant that he doesn't say it is written. Most of the time you'll see it is written. And it's not that he's doing anything injustice here, but some of these quotes are not exactly word for word and they're bits and pieces of different verses scattered. This one is, the first one is dealing uh, out of Isaiah 28.16 and you might see a different word or that might be phrased just a little bit differently. And a lot of times they will use, um, if I can say loosely, New Testament uh, writers will quote from Old Testament but it may not be exactly word for word but they're getting the gist of it to mean that. Yes, Bob? In this ESV version, before it stands in Scripture, for it stands. So, and, and of course, he's saying this is coming. This is this is the basis here. This is what it is here. Yeah. So he's referring to the the truth that it is that, and and it's definitely uh, there. Matter of fact, it'd be good to um, go to Isaiah twenty eight sixteen. Peter uses a lot of Old Testament passages. Notice that. Of course, Paul does all the time. New Testament is chock full of Old Testament passages, isn't it? It stands. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Now, there, there you have it there. Thus says the Lord, right? Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone, for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now that's my NAS. What, what does, uh, let's say, an ESV there? Dismayed. Okay. Who believes will not be in haste. In haste. Yeah, and uh, matter of fact, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Because that's uh, that's pretty accurate. 
he starts off after he says contained in Scripture, it stands in Scripture, and what have you there. Behold. When you see the word behold, you better check it out, right? Examine this. Look at this. You're called to attention here. Attention! We always should be to the Word, but check this out. Examine this. And he, it's just like Peter's really excited. It's just jumping off of his Old Testament scroll that he has laid out there on the floor. <laughs> and you go, look at this. Have you ever had a scripture and you go, oh man, this is incredible. And you have to go share with somebody. Yeah, Johnny, you're smiling over there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Dwayne, you ever had that? I got, I got one right now. What do you got? It's here. Well, it's, uh, it's what we're reading. Uh, he that uh, believes will never will not be put to shame. And uh, tonight, uh, and I don't want to make too much of coincidences, but God's the Lord of coincidences. <laughs> That's and, uh, right. Uh, tonight, Sherry and I were reading our daily Bible reading together, and it was Psalm 25, which says, and and this really helped me. You know, I shared with you guys what my experience was and how all the years and so forth. And then in January, when God broke the guilt and so forth. And, uh, well, this just added more confirmation to that where it says uh, in Psalm 25, where we're reading tonight, and it says, uh, well, where is it? I know it's here. <laughs> it's there somewhere. Verse three, Psalm, Psalm 25, verse 3, indeed, none is well, verse 2. It says, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. There you go. We will never be ashamed. We will never be disappointed. We will never be... There are a lot of different words for this. You guys got some other ones too? Different translations have those. But I mean, he's going to come through. That's really something to count on. I mean... You know, we've all been disappointed by different people. People are humans. And even though they may not even try to disappoint you, they might disappoint you, right? People will do that. People are people. But God never, never has and never will, will He? But for me, what what really stood out is that that because of Him, I mean, I had all those years of shame that I had backslidden. All those years of shame. Shame. And the enemy kept saying, this is you. You... Hmm are unworthy, you will be lost forever, blah, 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 blah. And and anyhow it was it was shame. Shame. Yeah, that's a uh, maybe a stronghold. Right. Hmm. And now those who believe will never be put to shame. Ultimately we will never be put to shame. Even if we get sidetracked and wacko or whatever else. <laughs> we ultimately will not be put to shame. Those that are his. Right, those that are his because we trust in the one who has redeemed us. Absolutely. Boy, that, that encouraging. We know that. Mm-hmm. But we need to be encouraged about that. That's what gets us through, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And when he says never, he means never. I was always afraid. I'm not meaning to monopolize time here. No, you're fine. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I look forward with such dread to the Day of Judgment. Because on that day, I would have so much shame. Because of what I had known and what I had let slip through my fingers, and and that I would stand before the universe basically and be speechless because of and to my unutterable and eternal shame. I mean, that's how I felt. Okay, you're based on 
I was based on my own work. I was based on me pulling myself through. And I didn't pull myself through, but He pulled me through. Even though you would have said that you don't believe in a works-based salvation. You would, really believe, you would say you believed in the grace of God, right. wouldn't you? But the truth of it was, you know, if I got mad at somebody and said something you know, out of line or whatever, I felt like I was not only was I out of fellowship with God, but that I had committed a sin that if I didn't re- if I didn't repent and I died at that time, you know, a truck hit me or whatever, <laughs> you know, yeah. train ran over me, that's it, man. Check it out. So it's always hanging over the head, isn't right. it? Right. That's that's not good news, is it? No, because every every three days I was a new I was going through this cycle, you know, sin confess, sin confess I'm afraid there are a lot of Christians that are in that mold. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a quote by Martin Luther. I wish I had it with me because it's so good. I'm sort of paraphrasing. But he said after like 30 years of ministry, he still struggles with this. Hmm. He said, I know it's not true. Everything is by grace. I know that. But I still struggle with wanting to prove myself to God and earn His approval of me. And uh, always go back. We have to preach the gospel every day I to ourselves. That's Martin Luther. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Is that part of our flesh that wants yes, to do that? Yes, absolutely. Romans eight one. Hmm. Therefore, there is now no what condemnation. That is good news. It's so simple, but it's it's flees away a lot. Uh, I lay in Zion. Zion is um, the city of God. Uh, in Isaiah, by the way, it refers to Jerusalem. Zion is the city of God known as Jerusalem, or it's Mount Zion, that whole area there that Jerusalem is is in. Um, the general thrust of the text there, the word Zion, if you want to compare it to um, Mount Sinai, which is where the law was given, and what we were just talking about there, uh, you know, the, the works righteousness, versus Mount Zion, which is the city of Jerusalem, which is the city of God, which is the city of of Christ. Jerusalem is a city that Mount Zion occupies, uh, but it's the realm of the new covenant of grace. That's what that is representing, the new covenant of grace, where Mount Sinai is the realm of the old covenant law. And so that's interesting that we'd just be talking about that subject there and then go right into that. He's mentioned unto them Mount Zion. So when you're thinking of that, it's, you know, we're not coming to Mount Sinai here. This is Mount Zion. So choose I think that's why Peter chooses Zion because he's emphasizing the new covenant. New covenant. I think he's choosing Zion because that's where Jesus died. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's a very practical thing. It, it's, uh, I lay in Zion and he who believes in him. So he's talking about Jesus was killed on the cross, died, and was buried in Jerusalem, Zion. So when we, so when we think of that, what do we think of? 
This is good, right? Now, he says, and of course, it, in that area is the temple too, isn't it? And of course, he has taken the place of that temple, or we are that temple also in that. He starts talking about the elect stone, or choice stone. Choice means elect, the elect stone, uh, the chosen by God. Christ is elect by God. And if you were to turn to 1 Kings 6, there was a temple being built. And we think of Solomon. And this is in Jerusalem. This is a city where the Messiah came and he died and he rose, right? When they were building that temple, if you look in verse 7, it says, The house, while it was being built, was built of stone, prepared at the quarry. Prepared at the quarry. Not on the site, but at the quarry. And there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. The stones were chosen and pre-made at the quarry. They were already chosen. And then they were brought to the to the site. It's almost like, I guess, someone has said that the, the stones were like marked with a number exactly where they were to go, to be put in the perfect place. And so you'd only have certain minor adjustments that would be made, and every stone would fit perfectly when they put that temple together. Now, with that analogy, how much better is it whenever this temple that we've been looking at, this spiritual house, has been made that way, chosen by God to fit in the absolute perfect place. And you are equipped with the different kind of gifts and talents, personalities, special abilities that each one has, and they fit perfectly. And that God did not make a mistake. Oh, Janice and I were talking about this earlier. In whenever He formed the inward parts, you know, people talk. This is a time that the church uh, needs to realize that we need to speak out and keep remembering about um, uh, abortion. And um, this is an anniversary. And Sproul has. Uh, I can't wait. I'll get home. I'll see that art. Uh, the whole table talk. Some of you take table talk. And, uh, he'll be hitting that whole issue. I guess really on that. And again, you know, uh, some of the churches uh, have just kind of knelt down to the ground and bowed to the world and the way it's going on that. And this is even coming not only from liberal churches now. Janice was saying even an evangelical church. Um, was it down in Florida, close to where Sproul was at, One of the largest in Orlando? So it's it's a well-known uh, church that preaches the gospel, I guess, I would hope. And yet they had somebody, a lady, coming in to speak in favor of um, what? Late term. Abortion. Late term. Like a par- partial birth abortion? That's incredible, isn't it? That's just unbelievable. That's like the Lutheran time of Yeah. Yeah. Speaking life and living death. I mean, you know, speaking the life of the gospel and yet uh, and, and what, what you're actually doing is death. Exactly. And look how many lives were, were lost because of that. So anyway, are, are you amazed though how we are put into this temple, fit perfectly, 
with the way that God has made you, and this is his, his building that he's doing. So all the stones were prepared first, and then they fitted together like parts of a puzzle. That's, that's what's going on. You know? That's like being chosen. <laughs> Not only, you know, of course, we see that Christ is chosen, but all the, the stones in this. The cornerstone is, all the rest of them are too. A beautiful analogy. The Lord set out to build this new temple of covenant people under the new covenant. And He set out to build this spiritual house with this cornerstone and that being elect and all of the other stones are elect, all of them were previously prepared for that destiny. (laughs) Knocks me out. Made to fit together in a perfect pattern by the Spirit of God who would be the builder, the organizer, uh, stones coming together according to this elect position. And it starts with the elect cornerstone, a, a choice stone, elect stone, a precious cornerstone. Interesting word. We've seen that. Um, it means valuable. It means irreplaceable. You can't replace this cornerstone. It's so valuable. So Christ is not only a stone elect, but He was a stone that was irreplaceable. Now, that uh, that means costly, without any equal. And then you move on, and then it says that one phrase, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Perfectly confident, trusting in all of God's promises. He is our confidence, isn't He? He builds the church together in perfection and we will never be ashamed. We'll never be let down. Um, We've all put our hope in someone or something and that hope is disappointed. We'll never be ashamed of what we have done in our lives ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will never let us down. He covers all of our sin. He doesn't disappoint us. He'll never fail to come through. Never fail to provide. Never, ever, ever, never. He will never fail to fulfill all the promises. We know that. Let's go to Isaiah 50, verse 7. It's good to be reminded, isn't it? For the Lord God helps me Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Well, that goes right along with the uh, psalm passage that you had, as Isaiah writes something that's very close to that. Look in Isaiah 54. Everybody knows 53. Let's read quite a bit of this chapter. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. 
Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations, and will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth. There we go, right? (laughs) And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. You can go on. But I mean, it kind of tells the story of Israel spreads out to all of God's people, really. And, you know, this, it was talking about fertility there, the barren one, and that's one of the, seemed like one of the worst things that could happen to especially a marriage when they couldn't have any kids. And, and uh, we see here that, that God uh, ultimately comes through. He has compassion upon them. So don't feel humiliated. Isaiah 28.16 when we were mentioning this earlier Therefore thus says the Lord God Behold I am laying in Zion a stone a tested stone a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed he who believes in it will not be disturbed what was another one? Be in haste Um, and literally the Hebrew means will not be in a hurry or in a haste. So Peter doesn't exactly use that, but we'll see how these kind of come together. What do you mean here, in a haste or in a hurry? Well, it won't be in a hurry to run away out of fear because God has failed him. Um, that's kind of the idea. You'll never, you'll never be confused. You'll never be ashamed. You'll never be disappointed. You're not going to run away because of, of the fear that's there now and God didn't come through for what He was supposed to be doing. You're going to run out of that. You'll never have to run in fear because your God has disappointed you. That's kind of the idea. Running in haste. Hurrying away. We don't have, we don't have anywhere to run anyway, do we? Just run to Him. The rock of ages. He never trembles under us. That's the promise. Never. We will never be disappointed. Do you like that? Now, verse 7. Back on Peter. Why didn't we sing that song? Yeah, we should have. <laughs> sure should have. Boy, I 
Here we go. A sure foundation of stone. Come on, Bob, help us out there. I lay in Zion for a foundation I lay in a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, your foundation, that's your foundation, that's your foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, foundation. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that comes from the 80s. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My God, this is me. That's good. A lot of memories there. <laughs> Hey, I remember that in uh in uh first time I heard that was uh we were doing prison ministry. One of my first times I was ever there, Norm Norm Stuckey and and Dan Witter. I don't know if anybody ever knew those guys. I knew Norm. Yeah. Yeah, Norm he, he led uh there for years and years the Tuesday night Bible study. And boy, it was really powerful. I remember going there as early eighties. I was I still played music back then in the secular side. I'd rush out of there as quick as I could and then go play. But, you know, I, I, I was really I was really getting into the Word of God at that time. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to leave. But I want to tell you, they had some singing there, boy. I'll tell you what, those guys were having a good time. But they, they sang that song. I'd never heard yeah, it before. Those guys that really knew what it meant to be a prisoner. Yeah. Precious, 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 precious. That's our next word. That's the word we're going to key on here. Christ is not just the milk we desire, but He's also the precious and chosen cornerstone. That's who we have our lives built around on in the church. What's that? Another Greek word for that? Uh-uh. Um, I don't have the Greek literally here. I can tell you what it means. Do you have it? No, I. I oh, we can probably find out here, right? <laughs> I could could read that. I could probably have somebody pick it out here. Yeah, I thought she was going to Yeah, I Yeah. Yeah, I was ready. Yeah. What? Well, um, that's in verse seven, right? Yeah. And. Um, no, that's still in six. Precious, uh, but the precious value as we move into seven. I think it is. I might be moving into six, though. That's what it was. Oh, I think it's Timothy. Which is dealing with honor. Precious and the one believing him not all be shame to you than the honor. Yeah, the se- verse seven is the honor talks about the honor. Verse six talks about the precious cornerstone. Do you have the word honor in seven? Yeah. So the honor is for you who believe. Oh. You don't have precious value there, do you? No. I like precious value better. But Time is actually the word for honor. So that's pretty accurate. My NAS. Uh, what's ESV have there? That's interesting. Honor. Honor, Honor again. Okay. So, That's probably better translation. 
Honor might be a little more, uh, maybe for that case might be a better word for word, but I'll tell you. The other one better. Remember what Sproul said? I am obligated, you are obligated to preach what the Bible really says, not what you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, my Bible says this. Actually, they're probably very, very related when you think of honor or this precious value. Honor. Um, when you connect verse 7 with verse 4, it's kind of interesting. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and... Do you have honor there? Precious. It's precious there. I wonder if it's team A again there. <laughs> i to look it up. But anyway, there it's choice and precious in the sight of God. Now there, the relation of precious is to who? Yeah, the sight of God, right? Okay, verse 7, then this precious value or this honorable value is for you. This precious value, this honor is for you. It's also for God and it's also for us. Precious. Precious. And so anyway, I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, I think Piper said it like this. I don't know if this is kind of loose or not, but he says believers are like chips off the old block, as it were. <laughs> we choose what our Father chooses. Mm-hmm. We feel to be precious what our Father feels to be precious. Jesus is precious, isn't He? That's stone, cornerstone. Saving faith will show, signifies a very new nature. Brand new nature. And the evidence of this new nature is that we desire Christ. We really desire. We cherish Him as being precious. We cherish Him as precious. Desire, affections for Him. That's what distinguishes us from unbelievers. Christ is something to us. He is a high honor. You know, and you go to court and the judge is there and what do you call Him? Your honor. He's the Lord is at the highest to to us. Um, if you're a believer, this is the way it is. I mean, it doesn't matter if one seems to be very spiritual or not. If they're really a true believer, he is precious. You know, I don't think any Christian could ever argue with that. There's a lot of different doctrines and things that uh, on secondary issues. You know, you can say, well. People can disagree, you know, but on this, you can't. If if somebody says, "Well, you know, sometimes he's precious," well, then I would really have to doubt their salvation. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he uh, he's at the very root uh, uh, of our faith. Uh, he he's an allurement to our affections. Uh, are you moved by desire for him? Right? How precious is he? How much is Jesus worth? How much is he worth? Where does he come on your scale of desires? Well, he's always at the top, right? Let's look in Matthew thirteen, forty-four to forty-six, a parable. Matthew thirteen is a parable chapter. You have a lot of parables, and then you get kind of. Uh, near the end of this chapter. 
he gives some uh, an analogy like that. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, of course, we don't buy the kingdom, but he's taking something that they would identify with. And if you were out in a field and you stumbled across, or you kind of looked and saw something, you'd, and you knew that, hey, listen, I always wanted this land anyway. I'll give everything that I have to have this. What a treasure. That's what Christ is to us. When we're drawn to Christ, we see such a precious treasure. may not realize how much that is, but but we, we realize he, he is more than anything else. We're willing to give up whatever it takes. Yes. I think I've got it here. There's the acrogonians, acrogonians, or something like that, um, and it, the meaning is at the extreme, taken all the way to the top. Precious yeah. value, uh, yeah. a, a value is the all, to the extreme, precious, to the very top. That's in verse six, right? Yeah. Okay. K R O and then gonios. Yeah, I think that's actually a different word there than the word in seven, although they are very similar. Yeah, I was looking to see if it had uh, different ones for that. There's a lot of them that have to do with the word precious. Bob, what did it say that it meant? To the extreme. To the extreme? Yeah, or you could say to the max, you know, or whatever. Prices to the max. There you go. A living example, Paul. How did Paul view Christ? Well, Philippians three seven says, "Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth, to the extreme, right, of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things." and count them as refuse, trash, in order that I may gain Christ. The mark of a saint is not that we have attained or are perfect, but that we long for Christ. That is what it is. We thirst like hungry babies for His Word and fellowship and power with Him. No Christian is ever satisfied with that condition, though. We want more, don't we? We just can't have enough. We want more and more. Aren't you glad it's that way? It just keeps increasing. And the better we know Him, the more we love Him. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy, right? When we're praising Him with that kind of thought. Uh, that's, that's what we value most. To you who believe, He is precious. It's clear that God treasures Christ above all other things. There's nothing more valuable in the universe than Christ because He is God and He manifests God precisely so that we 
would savor Him, treasure Him. So when you think of the God who embraces Christ as infinitely precious, so should we. And if, uh, I think Piper was commenting on this, said if English could use precious as a verb, he would use it as a verb. But it can't. But you can take the word treasure, and that can be a verb. And, and it's a noun, and can be a verb. So it helps us do exactly what the Bible wants us to do. To treasure Him. To know and feel Christ as precious. He is the treasure. A very a real treasure. A costly treasure. Thirsty like hungry babies. That's where what started this. So ponder about the worth of, of Jesus. Yes. Uh, in that passage, I don't think you finished where it had, then it goes on to talk about in Matthew there where it talks about the, uh, the pearl of great price. The very next one. Here's a... Uh, I wrote this down so I get it right. This is a thing that Don Francisco wrote and uh, uh, it just... It, I really like it. I think you guys will too. And now the God of majesty has given to the earth a gift of such magnificence we could never plumb its worth and the rudeness of the setting just ignites the jewel's fire, a pearl beyond the greatest price, the joy of man's desire. Wow. That's a poet. <laughs> yeah. That's that's beautifully said. Beautifully written. What song was that? Christmas song? It's on uh, it's on his live album and it's just one little verse and a couple of choruses and that's all there is to it. The guitar is beautiful and it's very pretty. That speaks. Yeah. That resonates. It's about the worth of Christ, isn't it? Prized above everything. Priceless. And that causes us want to, to love Christ. The last thing here, then, is the bad news part. It's part of God's plan for those ones who do not believe in Him. The stone which the builders rejected, they rejected Him. They checked Him out, examining they did everything they did they could do to find out if he was the one and they rejected him. He is not the one that we want. This is not ours. This is not our Messiah. This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and rock offense. The very stone that actually winds up destroying them. Um, Psalm 118.22 Isaiah 8.14 that's the quotes that uh, Peter's using. The builders reject the stone, and that still doesn't affect the purpose of God. People can reject Him, mock Him, do everything that they want, say all the nasty things, and say they don't even believe in Him, and then use His name in vain, and do all the nasty stuff here that people do here on earth. And then you take a look at this, and God's purpose is not thwarted in one little matter. He's offering Himself as a cornerstone. The religious leaders scrutinized Him, questioned Him, picked Him up, turned Him over, and checked Him out in every way that they could do it. And they threw Him out. Of course, they killed Him. That's not the stone that we want. He doesn't fit. doesn't fit in a way that we have in mind. And they're still doing it today. 
Most of the world is doing that today. That's not the ruler we want. To the leaders of Israel, he was worthless. To us, he is the, what? The extreme. You can't use a cornerstone that isn't straight. To them, he wasn't straight. He wasn't right. They were wrong. And to God and to us, he's a choice. Precious stone. And we believe that we'll never be disappointed in that. The rest who do not believe, he's a stone that was rejected. And when it talks about stumbling and offense, I'm just about done here. Look in Luke 20:18. 17, Jesus said this, but Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. That's Jesus himself. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And he's speaking prophetically there. It wasn't too long after that, was it, that that happened, but they rejected him. And uh, he was the one that was mentioned. We've looked at Isaiah and the Psalms. Um, and where Peter says this, Isaiah, Psalms, Peter, Jesus speaks about it. Um, what's stumbling and offense or scandal on is the word for offense. Familiar with scandal on? Our word scandal is taken from there. Um, matter of fact, Michael Card wrote a song called Scandal On, didn't he? It's a scan- he was a scandal makes men fall, makes them stumble. A stone of stumbling would be a stone that makes men fall as they would move in the in the road. A rock of offense is a is a cliff. It's like a cliff that literally men are crushed against as they would fall on the stone in the road and then they would be taken up against the, the cliff and crushed against it. So you have no uh, men, I guess you have men here then walking down this road and they fall over the stumbling stone, fall down, crushed against the cliff. Linsky wrote this. It should read, a stone of stumbling and a rock that knocks their brains out. Mm-hmm. And that stone, isn't it interesting? That stone, which is the cornerstone they threw away, they wound up stumbling over and they were crushed by it. Isn't that incredible? And here's the stone talking about this. Peter. <laughs> Peter turns from lithos, he's been talking about, the small stone, to Petra, which is a massive rock. That's men who disbelieve are crushed by this massive rock. Christ is that crushing stone. And so just like people who see him precious, there's only one other view. And they will be disbelieving of him and he will crush them. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. The idea is 
it's the doom is what they're appointed to because there's no other thing that can be done. There must be a judgment, and that doom has always been appointed in that sense. Christ uh, is the great unavoidable. You will come to the rock, and you either come to him as an elect precious cornerstone, or you come to him as a stumbling stone and a crushing rock of offense. He's either the cornerstone, or he's the Petra scandalon, a barrier rock which men are crushed. And that's the fact of the matter. A rock of judgment. Why? Because men reject the Word of God. And here's the opposite. Long for the pure milk of the Word. Either we believe it or we don't. The penalty for their sin is appointed because of unbelief. And see that in Isaiah 8.14. God always has the last say, doesn't He? So by God's goodness and His grace, Christ is no stumbling stone to us. He is no rock of offense whatsoever. Matter of fact, He is so precious to us. A living cornerstone that we are a part of. And so He is precious to those who believe. Thank you guys for coming up tonight. I can't think of a better thought than him being our treasure you know that is why we come together come around to be able to praise him share the thoughts that we have in here it's really helpful it's very encouraging we need that sometimes don't we what a gracious god but you always see here's a judging god also trust him Father, thank You for this evening. Thank You for Your Word. And may we go out of here just desiring more of You, seeking this great treasure, wanting to know more and more what's in this treasure. And we have eternity to do that, to do it together with, um, with Christ being at the center. Thank You for You. In Jesus' name, Amen.